0: Last time, the murder of Mary Ellen was brutal. But it wasn't the only thing that caught our attention. A human being doesn't do that. A monster does. It's what happened after her killer, a man named Lester Eubanks, was convicted and sent to prison. That's when the story took a
1: jagged a real crazy turn.
0: I'm Sunny Hostin. Over the past year, a team from the ABC News investigative unit has followed the case of Lester Eubanks. And they have joined the manhunt by U.S. Marshals who are trying to solve one of the oldest fugitive cases in American history. Now they may be closer than ever. From ABC News, this is Have You
2: Seen This Man?
0: When a person is sent to death row, the plan is for them to leave on a gurney. Sometimes there's a twist. You'll hear about cases being overturned or daring escapes that involve tunneling through the sewer or chipping away at a prison wall. But that's not what happened to Lester Eubanks. If you want to understand how Lester was able to escape, you have to look back at the Ohio prison system where he was sent. There were two main prisons at the time. Lester was held in the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus, which has been torn down. But the other one, the State Reformatory, is still standing today. And that's where ABC News investigative producers Matthew Mosk and Alex
4: Hosenball went. Boy, this really is looming. It looms large. If you drive a few miles outside of Mansfield, Ohio... Ohio State Reformatory you'll come upon a massive Victorian-style building with iron bars and watchtowers along a stone edifice. All right, so we just pulled in to the Shawshank prison. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look. The state reformatory looks familiar to just about anyone who's been channel surfing at night and paused to watch one of the most rebroadcast movies of all time.
2: I believe in two things, discipline... In the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me. Welcome to Shawshank.
4: In some ways, though it's set in Maine, Shawshank Redemption is the perfect backdrop to Lester's case. An inmate named Andy Dufresne works his way to freedom after years behind bars. But Lester Eubanks was no Andy Dufresne. When he was 22 years old, Lester was sent to Ohio's death row, his execution scheduled for the following January. Lester had been convicted of killing Mary Ellen Deener, a 14-year-old, after trying to rape her behind a vacant house in Mansfield, Ohio. It was a violent attack that ended with Lester picking up a brick and repeatedly pounding her in the head. That's how Lester ended up in the Ohio prison system in June 1966. If you walk through the state reformatory, you can get a sense of what a young inmate like Lester experienced when he arrived. Our guide was Michael Humphrey, who's burly with dark hair, dressed all in black. He spent 14 months in the prison for theft in the early 1970s at the same time Lester sat on death row. He walked us past the rusted bars and chipping paint of the cell block and stopped in front of an even smaller cell, dank and dark with a heavy steel door.
5: For a while, the state of Ohio experimented with putting two guys together in solitary. Okay? And in this cell right here, they put you guys in there that didn't get along. The one strangled the other one to death and shoved him under the bunk. So in the morning, only one of them walked out.
4: At the time, Ohio executed its convicts in an electric chair that was first used in the 1890s. These days, you can look at it through a thick glass partition. The wooden chair is worn with black leather straps and bolted to the floor. The stories you'll hear are gruesome, prisoners' skin turning red like a lobster boiling or a sizzling sound that witnesses had trouble forgetting.
5: I know some men were stronger than others and uh, took more electricity to kill them. uh, When they had stopped and they thought they were dead, it turns out they really weren't, and they had to hit them again. Of course, that is the original... In
4: 1967, there were two dozen men on death row. Lester was the next scheduled for execution.
5: No, I I, I would most certainly, you know, believe that each and every one would have to be fearing that day uh, when it comes, and And, you know, I know I would be if I'm sitting on there knowing that, you know, that day is coming for me and you would have to be awful cold-hearted not to.
4: Each time Lester's day drew near, he'd be granted a reprieve, his lawyers mounting a series of last-ditch appeals to get him off death row. They argued Lester was mentally unfit to face execution, but after three years, those appeals were losing traction. His time was running out. At one point, Lester was just 3 days from execution, 3 days from death. Then, in 1972, a lightning bolt was delivered, but not by the chair.
6: The Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional today and spared the lives of 600 men in death row cells across
4: the
2: country. With the divergent opinion,
4: the Supreme Court put a temporary stop to executions you can hear a little of the court's arguments on these grainy old recordings. This is Justice Potter Stewart pressing one of the attorneys who supported the measure.
2: Even assuming that rational people could conclude that...
4: He's asking him, even when you're dealing with people who are beyond rehabilitation, is it still a violation of the Eighth Amendment? Is it cruel and unusual punishment?
5: That is the, the attorney
4: the is clear in every case he believes. The
5: death penalty is a cruel and unusual punishment. That's what I understood.
4: And that was it. Everyone on Ohio's death row at that time, including Lester, saw their sentence commuted from death to life without parole. Lester was moved to general population.
6: All those inmates who were on death row were being evaluated because they're being released from death row and and would return to the population. So it was, for them, it was kind of a period of elation because up to that point, they had no reason to believe that they weren't going to be executed somewhere down the road. Uh, They knew they would go through their appeal process and things, but they were slowly but surely moving towards the electric chair. Now they had a second chance.
4: David Myers was a prison psychologist at the Ohio Penitentiary at the time he's written about the changes the prison went through
6: they were getting a new lease on life yes uh, you know death row was just sitting there in your cell basically most of the day uh, by yourself however, if you got in a regular population you had quite a lot of opportunity to to get out and walk the grounds and We even had in the psychology department, we had one person who was, that I know of, who was released from death row that we brought in to use as a clerk. So, you know, instant freedom.
4: In a different time, that would have been cold comfort to Lester. For a long period, American jails were not kind to young inmates. But Lester emerged from death row at a time when Ohio's prisons were in transition David Meyer said the correction system was trying to leave behind its violent past with a new focus, rehabilitation.
6: You had these old-style custody wardens for the most part, kind of the, the ones that you see in prison movies in Hollywood, you know, the real tough guys, and they controlled you know, by might, most of them. Then, but you had this new wave coming in and said, no, we, we need to change the way we deal with inmates if we're going to rehabilitate them. That
4: That effort was being led by a prison psychologist from Mansfield, who would one day head the Ohio prison system. His name was Bennett Cooper, and Bennett Cooper had the right philosophy at the right time. He was preaching a message of reform, and those ideas were gaining currency. He rose quickly through the ranks and eventually became the first commissioner of the new prison system in Ohio. Commissioner Cooper even caught the attention of one of America's first and most influential television talk show hosts, Phil Donahue.
6: This is Phil Donahue from the Ohio State Penitentiary at Columbus, our subject, prison reform. The show
4: is like a time capsule that provides a snapshot of how the public and Commissioner Cooper were thinking about prison reform, especially whether enough was being done to make sure inmates were ready for life after prison.
6: Also, Bennett Cooper...
7: Uh, we, we oftentimes have policy about something, and then as it goes down the line, uh, uh, it, it isn't impl- it isn't implemented much as you'd like for it to be. And yet, it's our responsibility to to have those kinds of tools to see that it's implemented. and And I think we are fashioning those tools at this point in this state. Uh,
4: and I, A close say- colleague of Commissioner Cooper from back then, Jeffrey Carson said he saw the benefits of those tools.
7: His philosophy of uh, rehabilitation was to equip people or citizens. Uh, He hated calling anyone inmates. Uh, We had detailed discussions about that. Uh, uh, Restorative justice, um, community service, uh, rehabilitation model, which all of those old models are no good. You take somebody up, put them on a post and whip them, that's not going to change anything.
4: Instead of tying him to a post or throwing him in a hole, the new Ohio prison system gave Lester Eubanks paints and a canvas. He became a member of the prison's art club, and he started to make a name for himself. There was even a feature story in the local newspaper with quotes from Lester about his new hobby. He told the reporter, I live art. He painted the activist Angela Davis, a counterculture hero who's now a noted author and academic. It's probably worth noting when he painted her portrait in 1970, she was on the FBI's most wanted fugitive list, on the run for murder charges. She was later acquitted. Lester told the newspaper, I have admiration and respect for her. Commissioner Cooper's approach might have brought calm and humanity to the cell blocks, but it was also producing an unwelcome byproduct, escapes. David Myers, who was the prison psychologist, remembered that problem as it started to emerge.
6: So that was a constant push-and-pull situation. And in attempting to figure out you know, what's the right balance, they made some obvious mistakes.
4: Inmates who behaved well were being designated as honor prisoners, placed in a special honor wing and rewarded with jobs and trusted to be left on their own for church or shopping trips.
6: And they'd drop him off at 1 o'clock and say, we'll pick you up at 3.
4: David Myers said, looking back, it should have been obvious that this was a recipe for trouble. In 1973, the problem was getting worse. In September, two men convicted of first-degree murder were allowed to attend the Ohio State Fair. They fled. In October, an inmate disappeared from the stands at a Cleveland Browns game. And in November, a fourth dangerous convict walked away. He had been out shopping. To inmates like Lester, these reforms looked like an opportunity. To police, it looked like the state's maximum security prison had sprung a leak. Dale Fortney, a Mansfield police detective who worked fugitive cases in the 1990s, remembers that period, and not fondly. He believes all the push for reform had gone too far.
3: This was the 70s, and everything's about rehabilitation. Um, That's why I think that era was ripe for that to happen. They were taking them to the Ohio State Fair, Cleveland Indians games, uh, shopping, and they are just walking away in droves. And uh, some they got back and some they never did.
4: He said no case illustrated this better than Lester's.
3: That Lester went from death row to commuted to a life sentence to then a year or two later, now he's such an honor prisoner that he can be taken escorted, unescorted uh, and left at a mall to go Christmas shopping. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, you just, I think normal people can't comprehend that that could actually happen.
4: It was December 7th when the prison warden approved a special trip for a small group of inmates, a shopping trip. The group would head to the Great Southern Shopping Center, an expansive mall with more than 50 stores, including the country's first Woolco department store, Both the prison and the shopping center are gone now, so it's hard to know exactly how this felt to Lester. But after so much time cooped up in a tiny death row cell, to climb into the back of a car and be driven outside the walls of prison must have been euphoric. At 10 a.m. on a 30-degree morning, under the supervision of a corrections officer named Michael Moore, the front gates of the Ohio State Penitentiary opened for Lester Eubanks. He and three other inmates left in a prison vehicle. The mall was not close, so this would have been a journey, maybe 20 or 30 minutes, and you can almost imagine the temptation, even with the chill, to roll down a window or turn on a car radio. David Myers, who worked in Columbus at the time, remembers the mall being on the very edge of town.
6: There wasn't anything beyond that, really, more than farmers' fields. It extended, you know, quite a ways. So, uh, you know, you were just kind of asking for a problem with that situation.
4: When they arrived, they would have seen an international-themed boulevard adorned with flags from around the globe. At the center was an international milepost, the kind that has signs marking the distance to major cities around the world. Columbus to Paris, it might have read, 4,030 miles. It's hard to imagine a more tempting sight to someone condemned to life in an 8-by-12-foot cell. People traveled from miles around to shop at the Great Southern Mall. Three weeks from Christmas, it would have been bustling. So much of the lore surrounding prison escapes is a perverse nod to the grit and ingenuity of the inmate. But on the day Lester made his escape, he was practically handed a written invitation. He was left unescorted, the corrections officer asking the inmates to return to a meeting spot at 2 p.m. The other three actually came back at the appointed time, but Lester did not. The group waited 20 minutes for him to return, and then they decided Lester was a, quote, walkaway, and they returned to prison without him. As Lester's flight began, There was no massive response, no helicopters searching the area, no dogs hunting for his scent. It took two full hours for prison officials to even alert the Ohio Highway Patrol. To the extent that there was outrage at all about Lester's escape, it was coming from prosecutors. In Mansfield, where Lester had committed the murder, and in Columbus, where he had gotten loose. Ron O'Brien was a young law clerk in the office back then. Now he's the top prosecutor in Columbus. He remembers when he first heard Lester was permitted to go shopping without any supervision.
6: The whole thing was a crackpot idea from the beginning, in my view.
4: Ron O'Brien says he believes the prison response was muted because officials were embarrassed. They didn't want it publicized. And the more people learned about it, he said, the more upset they got.
6: If you ask 100 people on the street corner, you know, is this a good idea? 100 out of 100 are going to say not only no, but H no.
4: He said his boss at the time took an unusual step, suing the state prison system.
6: It was our view is, hey, if you're taking somebody out of a prison uh, on a lawfully imposed sentence by a judge, you can't just infer the authority to do that. You have to have
4: a specific. But while their dispute headed to court. The few leads anyone had about Lester led them nowhere. Lester was gone, and for years to come, no one would even be looking for him. Many have come to view Lester's escape as a blot on Bennett Cooper's long legacy. The lawsuit eventually forced him to scale back his reforms. Prisoners were no longer permitted to take shopping trips unescorted. Jeffrey Carson, who was Commissioner Cooper's protege, still considers his old boss a visionary.
7: It was cutting edge. Sooner or later, it was going to happen. Uh, if you look at the case, he was screened. If you look at his behavior, if you pull this record of his behavior, his behavior had to be one that would allow him to go all the way down to a minimum security inmate. But I think in looking at, looking and backtracking and, and, and in retrospect, I think that all the right decisions were made to make the consideration to let him out, and the guy just made a bad decision to, to, to walk away. Uh, that's, that's something that, that, that happens.
4: It may be easy now, with the passage of time, to judge the program harshly. But Commissioner Cooper's daughter told us her father had the best of intentions. He saw the good in all men, whether his legacy was tarnished by Lester's escape that's not her place to say. It was a failing of the system. That just like the system fails in so many other ways. And, and, and he would feel such compassion for them. But you know what? You could, if blame helps you feel better, then I think that that's okay to place it if that's what people need to do.
0: In each episode, we're going to chronicle two journeys, Lester's flight from prison and the effort by the U.S. Marshals to bring him back into custody. After the break, we turn our focus to the modern-day manhunt. Our team takes a look inside Lester's inmate files and makes a surprising discovery.
3: Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth.
2: In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.
4: One of the first places Deputy U.S. Marshal David Seiler looked as he began his search for Lester Eubanks his prison file. Over the summer, Alex and I left Cleveland with Seiler and drove two hours to a sprawling industrial complex in downtown Columbus, the main office of the Ohio prison system. We were led into a conference room where a discolored file folder bulging with papers was waiting on the table. The name written in cursive at the top, Eubanks, comma, Lester Edward Seiler opened it up Hmm.
1: October 30th 1970 Inmate Eubanks Was clapping his hands And calling officers Derogatory names March 71 Eubanks hit Another prisoner Knocking into the ground Eubanks threw the first punch I will please self-defense, his argument. September 9th, 1971, inmate McDonald was coming out of the shower on D-side, struck in the face by inmate Eubanks, fell to the floor fighting. I mean, you can see that he consistently was argumentative and fought.
4: But yet, he still got an honor assignment. Moving through the stack of papers, Seiler saw the tone of the letters begin to shift as the date of Lester's escape drew closer. So this is a recommendation letter. <laughs> um, In the months just before he was granted permission to go shopping, a series of commendations turned up.
1: It's a recommendation letter for... Lester, um, to put him in certain positions, um, and they notate that he's a
4: good, a fine worker, good clerk, good attitude. Two more similar notes followed in quick succession. Seiler thinks they're fishy.
1: His behavior prior to 1973 was appalling. Um, Even in 1972, when he was pushed from death row to general population, behavior was not not that of an honor inmate. And then all of a sudden he starts earning all these letters of recommendation for positions. So far, there's been three. And I get it. You know, we want these guys to earn that. It's It's not the issue. We want them to behave. We want them to do good things. It's just the timing of these letters are suspect.
4: Another type of document stood out to Siler as he leafed through the papers. Requests for visitors. On its face, that wouldn't be strange. But as the date of the shopping trip approached, the logs show the same visitors coming back again and again. So many, in fact, that Lester had to request special permission to get extra visits, a request that was granted. Right right now there's like sheets of paper sort of arrayed around you. A lot of it is handwritten. This is like, this is 1970s, so we're to early 1970s. Most of these documents are handwritten documents. Are those in Lester's own hand?
1: Yeah, this is Lester Eubanks' writing. This is his writing. Um, His requests. Uh, to the warden or to whoever was in charge of him at the time, um, it's him requesting for certain people to come and have permission to, to visit him uh, as well. And their notes, you know, just him requesting people to to visit him. And these are some of the people that we have focused um, we have focused on during the investigation.
4: There are a couple of women from Mansfield and members of Lester's own family, most notably his father. What did they discuss? I don't know. But he walked away and he had a plan. Did his plan involve positioning himself for a shopping trip to the mall and then having someone waiting there to whisk him away? This is um, very calculating.
1: I mean, he had to hear of this program prior to and thought, well, this is probably the only way I'm going to be able to escape. So you know that he had to win over um, the warden. He had to win over the guards. He had to promote himself as one of those good guys in the jail. By winning him over,
4: they took him to a shopping mall and dropped him off. Lester did not just disappear. When he arrived at the strip mall, police believe someone was waiting for him. I knew Lester had been in regular touch with his father, Mose Eubanks. What I did not know was that Seiler had a new theory about Mose. He called us in the car. When his
1: dad arranged for him to be picked up and took him north to Michigan...
4: And then they travel north. You're talking about Moe's, Lester's father. Moe's, Lester's father, correct.
0: If Lester's father secretly helped arrange for his son to be whisked away from the Great Southern shopping mall on that December day, could he be the key to finding him? Next time, Lester was on the run. And using his family tree as a guide authorities started to retrace his steps, his daring flight nearly ending before it had even begun.
7: The bus slows down to a stop. He looks out the window and he sees all kinds of uh, marked police cars sitting alongside the road and he thought he was caught. The game was over.
0: We've compiled photos of Lester Eubanks, including an age-progression sketch showing what the U.S. Marshals believe he may look like today on abcnews.com slash this man. You can also find a lot of additional content on the case there, and we'll be updating the page as news warrants. If you have seen Lester Eubanks or have any information about his whereabouts, you can provide your tip directly to the U.S. Marshals at 1-866-4-WANTED. That's one 866 If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating and a review. Have You Seen This Man is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio. Written and reported by Senior Investigative Producer Matthew Mosk. Additional reporting by Producer Alex Hosenball and Associate Producer Jin Sol Jung. Production by Suzy Liu. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, and Stacia Deshishku. Cindy Galley is our chief of investigative projects. Chris Vlasto is senior executive producer. I'm Sunny Hostin.
5: As in previous campaigns, it's the economy's stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning.
1: First, though, it's the news,
4: stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In
2: 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election?